Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that um, while there are areas of uh, Christian liberty where we might have uh, different opinions, we thank you that your word is a sufficient guide, is the sufficient guide to us for faith and life. And we ask that as we study it this morning, that we would be encouraged as we think about your return and the various uh, ramifications that that has for our faith and for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Thessalonians 4 once again, and we will finish that up today. And maybe, depending on the amount of questions and commentary, which is always welcome, but depending on all that, we may actually move into chapter 5, but we'll see about that. So 1 Thessalonians 4, and we will start reading again with verse 13 and go to the end of the chapter. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we started last week on the same passage, and we focused on the first couple of verses that look at the way in which um, erroneous beliefs um, about the return of Christ had become a source of grief for these folks. And from that context, we also talked about the fact that Paul was not upbraiding them for grieving because grieving is an appropriate Christian response in the face of death, of the death of loved ones. But rather he was saying that they should not grieve like hopeless people grieve. So they were not to grieve as others do who have no hope. And he grounds um, the hope for Christians in the hope of the gospel itself, as well as the assurance that when Christ does return, that those uh, believers in the congregation that had uh, died, that they would not be left out of the benefits of Christ's return. And so that's as far as we got last Sunday. And so we will pick up and see some of the things that Paul writes to them about the return of Christ himself. So in verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So He says that he's giving these instructions uh, to them because of a word from the Lord. Uh, What is not clear is what exact word from the Lord that he's talking about. So is he referencing here something that's uh, recorded in the Gospels? Well, there may be some hints in a portion of the Olivet Discourse or things from the Gospel, but... We really don't find anything in the Gospels that's exactly what that, that Jesus said. That's exactly what we have here, and so we do not know if, if Paul is ref, if, is drawing an inference from something that Christ said 
during his earthly ministry, or if this is a direct revelation um, from the Lord as Paul was writing these words, we do not know. But we do know that his authority is the Lord himself. So, and, and, and so these instructions are not Paul's guesses as to what's going to happen at the end of the age, but rather he, has, uh, he knows these things and he's instructing the believers of these things and he's instructing us in these things because he has uh, learned this uh, from the Lord Jesus himself. And so what he knows from that is that those um, who have died will not be left out of the return of Christ, or as he puts it here, that we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, notice that Paul has already said that those who have died are already with the Lord. Look back up at verse 15. For this we declare to you uh, by the word, or no, I'm sorry, um, in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, if I tell you that I'm going to come to your house and visit, and I'm going to bring Lynette with me, where's Lynette? She's with me, right? If I'm going to bring her, that means that she's already with me. And so if God is going to bring with him, through Jesus... Those who have fallen asleep, that would indicate that those who have fallen asleep, the dead in Christ, are already with him. Their souls are with Christ. And when he returns, Christ will bring them with him. And so the resurrection at the end of the age is about body and soul being, re, being reunited. And so that which was severed at death is going to be reunited in glorified form, but there is an assurance here that those who are dead in Christ are already with Christ. Lots of, um, and I don't want to fall into the silly here, but there are many Christians that believe things about the intermediate state that are not correct. Do you know that one-third of evangelical Christians believe in reincarnation? According to Barna surveys, a third. Um, you hear many Christians say that their loved one has died and they are an angel now. Um, we don't become angels when we die. Um, there are um, some, including Christians, that believe that they have um, visits by ghostly type presences that are their. Um, that are their um, loved ones that are coming back to make a visit. None of these things are Christian understandings of the state of, of, the, of after death, Lynette. Soul sleep. This, right, what you just said about them with Christ um, refutes the idea of soul sleep that somehow in Christian death. It does, yes. Yeah. My question in this is me watching the TV. Um, but, you know, you see these medium shows and you see these things where people are supposedly communicating with the dead and I've always kind of swayed, I guess, that they're demons, but how do we explain that? Like, I'm just curious, like, is there an explanation for that or do we just, like, don't know what's going on on that end? Or? Well, I, th I think that not all... Not every situation may have the same explanation, so there may be multiple explanations. So, 
I, I wouldn't dismiss the idea that it could be demonic. So that, that's a possibility. Um, another strong possibility, and I think it probably explains the majority of instances, is simply the strong power of suggestion causes people to believe things that are happening that are, that are, not, um, that are not really happening. And this can involve even situations um, that involve lots of different people. So let me give an example of this, and I hope, uh, depending on your experiences, this may be controversial, but I hope not. So you have situations where people um, decide that there's uh, some sort of, sort of odor or something in a building, and you'll have 20 people, 50 people, 100 people say they're sick, and they'll, they'll leave the building because there's an odor or something that has um, sickened them. In almost every instance where that happens, um, it, they're not able to find anything. And generally what gets said quietly after the fact, and quietly because they don't want to offend people that became you know, throwing up type sick, is that the belief is that in almost every instance, these are instances of uh, mass hysteria where the story got started and yeah, I, I feel that too, or I smell that too. And, and so now if, if that's happened to you and you want to tell me that, it, you know, no, no, there was really an odor in the building, I'm not questioning that. But in the vast majority of instances, the power of suggestion is enough uh, to cause these kind of reactions, yes. Um, I watched a show where they uh, were like, uh, the, uh, they were showing that they were fake, uh, like some Soviet, you know, psychics, and they have people come in deliberately giving off the wrong, you know, like completely different from how they are in real life, and, and the psychics almost to a person, you know, misread. Like, mm -hmm. And they even did a thing where they like showed pictures, and they showed pictures of, you know, like people who are really, you know, um, good people and people who are really bad people like, you know, was it Ted Bundy? You know, he mm -hmm. looks really good. And so they showed these psychics, you know, a picture of Ted Bundy and they're completely wrong. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, you know, they're like throwing out suggestions and watching your, you know, mm -hmm. body, you know, how you react and, and then they follow that along. And so I think they're just really, some of these people are really good at reading people is what basically yeah, absolutely. And there are some people that have made a living of um, yeah. of uh, confronting the, the uh, claims of psychics yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's really interesting. Anybody else? So, um, so anyway, Paul emphasizes here that those who are dead in Christ, those who are asleep in Jesus, as he puts it, um, God will bring it with him. And that emphasizes the fact that they are already uh, with him. To be absent from the body, as Paul writes to the Philippians, is to be present with the Lord. Um, in Revelation 21, a passage I don't want to get too much into, um, or, yeah, because it um, would just bring in more issues to talk about that we can't get into this morning. But uh, the, the Apostle John writes of a vision of those who have been martyred and he sees the souls of those that have been martyred on thrones, reigning with Christ, uh, which is just a magnificent uh, picture of those that uh, were rejected and martyred on earth are reigning along with Christ. But it speaks of the fact that they are 
with Christ, um, as will all of uh, us be if we um, die before um, the return, uh, before his return. So then in verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now what you see here is a dramatic, glorious, majestic, conspicuous event. Um, There are three types of sounds that are mentioned here. A cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Um, Grammatically, these could refer to three different sounds, which is the way I take it, but some commentators will um, argue that this is actually three ways of describing the same uh, sound um, at Christ's coming. But this is very different from Christ's first coming when he came in weakness as a baby. In this instance, he's coming in power and authority to claim his people and to judge those who are not his people. And so this is a... uh, This is a powerful event. It is a conspicuous event. It is a loud event. Now, it's important to keep this in mind because the majority of evangelical Christians, and perhaps some in this room, I don't want to offend you, but some see this as a secretive event. And so when I was growing up, I'd see the pictures. Have you seen these pictures of there would be a picture of somebody that's supposed to be Jesus. That would be a second um, uh, commandment violation. But a picture of somebody that's supposed to be Jesus, you know, up here above the clouds in a robe with his arms spread out. And then you look down at the earth and there's a car crash at an intersection and people, somebody standing outside one of the cars scratching their heads. What happened? There's an airplane that's uh, in the side of a building uh, sticking out and, and there are people standing around looking confused, wondering what in the world's going on because something happened. All these people disappeared. But, you know, we don't know why they disappeared, where they went, what's the car crash, where'd the driver go, what happened to the pilot of that plane. Why? Uh, and so nobody knows what happened. It was some sort of secretive event. Now, it is possible... That there was a cry of command, there will be a cry of command and a voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God, and that only Christians will hear those noises, and nobody else will have any clue as to what's going on. That's possible, but you really have to kind of work to read that into the text. What you see here is a loud, conspicuous, powerful event and, uh, uh, that, that is occurring at the coming of Christ. And so not something that's secretive and everybody will be scratching their heads. What's happening here, whether for their good or for their ill, it seems that the text is saying everybody's going to know what's going on. And for believers, it will be for our good because it will be um, at the time of our resurrection when we are united with Christ and we, when we are united with one another, including those who have preceded us in death. And so 
The emphasis here is on something that's loud, that's conspicuous, that's authoritative, a cry of command, the sound of a trumpet. These are authoritative, um, celebratory or, um, or regal uh, ways of noticing that something important is happening. No, go ahead. I was sitting here thinking because I grew up Baptist uh, originally, and you know the Left Behind series and all those kinds of things, and you know to see her coming. And as I was sitting here, I was thinking about Christ's first coming. I went, wait a minute, that wasn't quite either. Like, yes, he was born in a stable, but he sent a legion of angels to go tell some shepherds that he'd come. He went and put a star out and told the wise men. He didn't even keep that a secret, even though he was born in a draw. It's like, yeah, I think the second one's going to be quieter. And and that, that is a that is a good really good point, but still there is a difference in that um, the conspicuousness was to a more targeted audience yes, with his first coming. This is going to be a worldwide yeah. So there is a difference, but your point is well made. Yeah. Right. No, it's it's just um, that um, the New King James was really built on the um, the knowledge of Greek that was available when the King James was translated, and so cry of command is just more specific. Um, it, it seems that there's more of a battle of an armor, armor army imagery with the cry of command. Sorry, translating from modern Latin. Sure. Well, cry of command is, I mean, it's, it's within the range of meaning of the term. And then it, it, it also fits with the other imagery here. And in, in a moment, we'll talk also, in addition to the, uh, you know, the sounding of a trumpet, the shout, uh, even the word for coming um, indicates a royal appearance. So, um, you know, there's a range, as is always true in translation, there's a range of possible meanings. And the idea of a cry of command seems to fit the overall context of the passage. Yeah, you shouldn't talk about trumpet because I just looked up the trumpet too. That's related to the Matthew 24 where they reference that as well. But were you no, go, no, go ahead because I was not. Oh, okay. Because I was curious if the um, trumpet of God is referenced. And so my little ESV sends me back to Matthew 24, 31 when Christ is talking. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So I haven't studied this. I just wonder. I was curiosity of trumpet of God was referenced and then they sent me back to Matthew 24. Yeah, and, and again with uh, a context that emphasizes that it's authoritative, it's it's, scary, um, yeah, it's a it's, regal, yeah. It almost has like an army feel, you know, mm-hmm. I guess when you think of the cry of the trumpet and then his angels are going to, what are they going to do? Send out, he will send out his angels and they will gather his elect. 
Yeah, so um, uh, sort of in a way a parallel passage to what we're looking at. And the one elaborates on the other. So this word for coming, and Chuck talked a little bit about this week, this last week and helped me realize I needed to do a little more study. I was being too lazy. So, um, so I've actually done some work on this. The word for coming is the word um, parousia. You don't have to remember that. Um, but it occurs about 24, 25 times in the New Testament. And about half of those are um, in the Pauline uh, letters. So interestingly, um, it, it has both a general sense at times, and this is true in Greek literature as well as in the New Testament. It has both a general sense and then also a technical sense of the term. And if we think about words in English, I mean, we, we have words that are also, um, that, that also have those kinds of ranges of meaning where we use them in general ways, but they also in a different context can be a technical term. So if I were standing here this morning and, um, and I said something like, I need for you to show me some consideration, you'd look at me and think, well, he's saying we're not being very nice. We need to start being nice to him. And you would think that, and then, and then you'd wonder why my feelings were so prickly and what was wrong with me and all that. So the word consideration is sort of a general term that means nice, right? Well, on the other hand, if we're in a legal environment and we're working on a contract, and I say I want to know what the consideration is, in contracting, that's a technical term, and it means something like this. If I'm going to give you a discount for my services, you need to tell me what consideration you're going to give me in return. So it's an exchange of things of value in a legal context. And so the word has both some general meanings, and it also has a technical uh, meaning depending on the context. Well, the same is true with regard to this word that is translated coming here. It has both um, general uh, meanings and then also it came in Greek literature to have a technical meaning as well. So we see it in a couple of places, we see it in several places in the New Testament in this more general sense. So turn back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 3. For you are still of the flesh, for, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For where, wait, I, I have the wrong passage. Well, what did I do? I wrote down the wrong, oh, I'm reading the wrong place. <laughs> Okay, I had the right passage, I just don't know where to find it. Okay, chapter 5 and verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The word there translated present is the same word that is translated coming in the passage in First Thessalonians. So it has, as, and I think Chuck mentioned this last week, it has the idea of presence, of being present with them. And so this is one of the general uses. Now, turn over to chapter 7 and verse 6. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, 
I wish that all were as I myself am, but as each has his own gift from God, um, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And that is not at all the right passage. So what did I do this time? Did I read the wrong place again? No, I am reading what I wrote down. Um, well, I have messed this up about as badly as I can. Oh, Second Corinthians. Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing and your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And so there, once again, the, uh, the word that is translated coming of the Lord in First Thessalonians is um, spoken of with regard to the coming of, uh, of Timothy, of Titus, here in 2 Corinthians 7. And so you see kind of the range of meaning. And in, the, in both of these instances, it's talking about the presence or the coming of ordinary people. And so, that, and so in a general sense, the word can have that meaning. On the other hand, in Greek literature, prior to the writing of the New Testament, the term for coming had come to have a technical sense as well. And that technical sense referred to the arrival of a dignitary, of a, for example, a representative of the emperor coming to visit a city. And in these celebratory comings of a royal personage, um, the, uh, those that were loyal to the emperor or to the government would come out of the city and uh, join with this dignitary that was arriving. And after greetings and celebrations, then they would return to the city. And part of the activity when returning the city, to the city would be judgment upon those who were not loyal uh, to the emperor, who were guilty of uh, crimes or whatnot. And so it seems that this technical sense is the significance of Paul's usage of the word coming um, here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so again, it, it all fits with the uh, conspicuous, uh, lang the language of conspicuousness that is here, that the Lord himself is coming, um, descending from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God he is coming as a royal figure to gather his people and then to pronounce judgments on those um, who are not a part of his people. And so there, there is, throughout this, um, powerful imagery regarding uh, the return of Christ, the coming of Christ uh, with authority and in judgment um, when he returns. Thoughts or comments about that? Language would have helped them out because they would have understood them. And go, oh, okay, cool. 
it wouldn't have been as ambiguous as what happened in a few thousand years and change languages. And there's a lot of truth to that, and that's why, um, you know, in the OPC, more than in, in most denominations, we um, require our ministers to know the languages, um, because all of us can't do that. Um, although I, I've known laymen that um, that took the time and effort to learn um, Greek and Hebrew, but most of us are not able to do that. But that's why we have our ministers that can do that work and, and help us in, in learning the word, John. So uh, I may be getting ahead of you. Oh, no, you know, surely not. You may be getting to this in a few minutes. But, you know, the concept, so what you're saying is the concept of the kind of the delegation of people from the city going out to meet the visiting, the visiting dignitary or emperor is bound up in that just kind of the inferences of the use of the word parousia. I had, in the past, or at least the impression that was left in my mind, was that the, the language in verse 17, also who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Was that not also a technical language that refers to that delegation going out as well? All referring in, to in the, the same thing. language? Yes. Okay, because that's so they both are consistent. It's not just that that was part of that term and the rest of this is just correct no that just adds another layer to it another technical phrase okay yeah okay now the other thing that can be said here is that it's possible that you can read this and say well all these people are going out to meet christ but rather than immediately come back to the city in judgment and we're to some degree we're speaking metaphorically here But rather than that, they're going to go hang out for seven years and then come back. If you want to read that in, you can read that in. Is there anything in this text that gives any indication of that? No. And in many ways, it seems like a strain of the text and of the language here to import those ideas. There's no no indication here of any kind of delay um, or of uh, this being the first stage of a two-stage second coming. Um, so these are ideas that get imported into this text. Is it possible? I suppose it's possible, but it really doesn't seem to fit naturally um, into the text. And uh, yeah, go ahead. It is a comforting thought, and, and that was, of course, the purpose of this entire section, that they were, they were being grieved because of their misunderstandings, and so now, with this full understanding of what's happening, um, they can be comforted because not only will we all be joined with Christ, um, but we will all be joined with one another. No one will be left behind, that's right. No one will be left behind. And those, um, and I again, I don't want to be disparaging if you hold the other view. I, for part of my life, I, I grew up um, believing um, some of the views that I'm speaking against now. Um, so I mentioned last week that over the course of my life, I've held three of the 
four dominant uh, millennial views. Um, and that was the one I started out with. And back when I believed that, I read, I actually read lots of books from that perspective. I thought I really understood all that really well. And, um, and then I changed my mind. But, um, so anyway, I don't, I don't want to disrespect anybody that holds those views, but their, their, their case from scripture is really not very good in spite of the, um, the level of certainty that sometimes uh, folks express regarding them. The only way to get to the seven years is to have what I think is a really poor understanding of Daniel chapter 9, uh, but we don't have time to get into all of that, but that's the only place that the idea of seven years comes from. Yeah. So, yeah, that's because I grew up that way too, and it seemed to me that it was just kind of a mishmash of go over here and plug this out, and go over here and plug this out. There's not really Yeah, the, and, yeah. What what they <laughs> insist on? I know. Well, that was part of why I drifted away from that or got away from that is because you know they they not only told you that it was happening like this, but they knew when it was going to happen, and it was going to happen in the late seventies, and then it was going to happen in the late eighties, and it, as we get closer. How is he? Yeah. So these times kept you know past and it didn't happen. I was like, well, you know, this is probably a bunch of malarkey. And and I think you know my daughter's a, an English major. I think you know every time you get to like the millennium, you know, I think there's this like anxiety. And you saw that playing out with the Y2K stuff and you know and the general. But I think that's that was part of that. And I think that you're right, but I, but also to your point, when um, Christians make these kind of predictions and then they turn out not to be true, it's used uh, by some of the people that same people that discredit psychics. They also use this to discredit Christianity because you've made these claims and then they turn out not to be correct. So that that's the other danger there. Um, but those that hold these views, that you're right, they do draw from a lot of portions of Scripture. What they claim is that that they are taking the Bible literally, and so they take all of the land-oriented promises from the Old Testament and say that those have to be fulfilled literally. You know, not understanding that many of those um, have um, important spiritual and symbolic um, connections that that would seem to be the, the true um, import of those of those passages. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say they're taking the Bible literally, but Jesus told the disciples specifically in very literal language, it is not for you to know. So they don't look at all of Scripture. The Bible just explains the Bible. Yeah, and, and that's such an important and that's point. that's my other problem with it is, you know, Jesus saying, It's very important. It's a, it's a very important point. And, you know, the other thing is that there's a tendency, even by those that are very insistent that they're taking Scripture literally, to pick and choose what they're literal about. So um, several years ago, I was actually teaching a Sunday school class, and, and somebody um, caught me after class and said, they, they questioned why the, uh, some, the passage regarding the mark of the beast 
why my understanding of that was not as literal as what his was. And I said, well, because he said it's so specific and a specific number and on your forehead and all these details. Why don't you take that with absolute literalness that you're going to be economically disadvantaged if you don't get a literal number on your forehead? And I said, well, Revelation 13 starts with a beast with ten horns coming out of the sea. Your understanding of that's not literal because you think that it symbolizes a, a, ten king, a, a, a group of countries with ten uh, leaders that eventually unite. So why is it that you're literal about the part in the, at the end, but you're not literal about the ten-horned monster that comes out of the sea at the beginning. And so even those that claim to interpret and you know, and you get into other things like with Hal Lindsey that, you know, locusts are helicopters and this sort of thing. So um so they, they, they do tend to be a little bit um choosy about what's literal and, and what's not. Chuck. Even these verses that we're looking at now may may very well be uh should perhaps be taken metaphorically rather than literal. Uh, trumpet, voice, uh, the next verse talks about uh, clouds and air and so on. A number of commentaries say that that is to be taken more metaphorically rather than to, to that is an anthropomorphic way of looking at what's going to happen. If you go over, over to Second Peter and look at his idea uh, well, actually next week I guess we'll get into chapter 5 and talk yeah. about the day of the Lord. But Second Peter says that but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed and uh, verse 12 will be set on fire, dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and be burned. So, so Peter seems to describe the second coming in a more cataclysmic way than what we normally tend to think of it. We tend to think that the earth is going to, to continue on. And there'll still be trees and buildings and, and but that's not the way Peter describes it. It'd be very cataclysmic. There will be the dissolution of creation and we'll move into the new heavens and the new earth almost instantly. Yeah, and I, I think that your point is really well made that the language is frequently, including in First Thessalonians 4, is anthropomorphic. Because, and, and what I've tried to emphasize this morning that I think is consistent with what you just said is that you know, the language is designed to show us that this is an event that um, is conspicuous, it's loud, it's noted by everybody, it's authoritative, it's a king coming in promise and judgment, you know, all of these uh, point toward the significance of the language. You know, there are some people that want to look at this language and say, well, are we going to see Gabriel actually putting the trumpet up to his lips? Um, is it going to be seen in Singapore and in New York at the same time because CNN is carrying it? You know, it's you, you, you find people that have all of these kinds of... Um, literalistic notions, and I would say wooden literalism, whereas the point um, that Paul is making is that this is going to be an authoritative coming of Christ for his people and in judgment against those who are not his, 
And so it's the, it's the significance um, and, and really the multi-layered significance of what Paul says here that really is what we should take from the passage. Um, now again, there, there, there are some that would hear my explanation. Maybe they'll write the church on their podcast and say, you need to get rid of Monroe, he's a liberal, because he doesn't take the trumpet literally. But, but again, you know, it's a matter of, of what, what Paul is saying when he talks about cry of command or a shout or the trumpet and um, a regal coming. I mean, what, what is he saying here? He, he's saying all of these things that we've been talking about, that it's authoritative and glorious um, and regal. Um, so that's the real significance of the language that's here. And I hope you don't think I'm a liberal. literally is coming in physical form. That is literally happening. Yes. We may not completely understand the way that it was Mary and Joseph. Some of those are still hidden from us, but that he will literally come. Yeah, and that's so much of the other thing that we perhaps not talked about enough that's emphasized here. That the reason that they're not grieving hopelessly is that God is bringing with him through Jesus those that have fallen asleep. And then the Lord himself, in verse 16, is the one that's descending and coming. And so um, the emphasis here is that it is a real visible and literal return of the same one that died and rose for us. And so the same one that is our savior that offers us the gospel hope of verse 14 is the one that is returning for us at the end of the age. It is the Lord himself. And that, um, that, um, the, the use of the, the pronoun himself is something that comes through in the English as well as in the Greek, that um, the emphasis is on, it is him personally that is returning in favor of his people and in judgment of those who are, who are opposed to him. Yeah. I would say the one big danger of, I don't know if it's post-millennial, pre-millennial, but whatever, even what we've been talking about, is that, and I've run into people Yeah, and what you're talking about is one of the two forms of premillennialism yes, that's yeah. common. But um, do we need to... Chuck, go ahead. Uh, one verse provides a little bit of a nuance on this thing about the coming. is in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 2. The lawless one will be brought to nothing. This is Second uh, Thessalonians 2a. The lawless one will be brought to nothing by the appearance of his coming which seems to amplify the idea of the fact that it's an appearance or a presence of his coming. 
and also back to the point that it's a, a literal coming. We'll see him, if you will. It's not it's not to be considered uh, symbolic, but an actual coming or appearance. So true. Yeah. So do I need uh, next Sunday? We'll get into chapter five. Let me ask the class what's helpful to you. Do we need to do a quick, quick and dirty summary of the four primary millennial views? I'm seeing nods. Okay, we'll do that. I've been trying to decide if I'm going to get dragged kicking and screaming into that discussion. But, um, okay, we'll do that. Um, so basically, there are two forms of premillennialism. Um, historic and dispensational. The dispensational premillennialism is the more common. And then, to simplify, I'm going to say there are two forms of, of postmillennialism. Uh, one is commonly called postmillennialism. The other is commonly called amillennialism. Can you know what and we will do that. The idea of millennial is, it, is the Latin term for a thousand years. Yeah, that's about all I know. And actually, the term the, the term only appears in the Bible once in Revelation uh, twenty one, twenty or twenty one. I get mixed up. Um, but um, the interpretation of that passage is, ob for obvious reasons, important to all of this. But basically, there are four views. So I'm out of time today. So invite all your friends and neighbors and dispensationalists, and we'll talk about it next <laughs> next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be humble about uh, things that we don't know, but um, also glad for things that you have helped us to understand. And we thank you that as believers, um, that uh, your uh, return and the promises associated with it are a source of comfort and joy for us. And, um, and we pray that you would help us, help us to live in light of that joy, um, even when we do in, endure things that are sources of grief. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.